following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So I'd like to start. I would like you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what you would do if you inherited enough money that you never had to work again. Now, not what you would buy. Not interested in that this morning. What you would do with your time if you didn't have to work. And if you're a kid... Your parents are getting the money, not you, so you can't answer this question. If you're a kid, turn to your neighbor and just tell the, tell the person next to you what you think you might like to do for a job when you're old enough to have a job, okay? So what would you do if you didn't have to work because you had so much money? And then for kids, what, would you, what do you want to do when you have a job? All right, wrap it up in just a minute, please. There are some surveys going through the seats here. And this is um, my way of kind of trying to see what industries we all work in as a community. What is your vocational field? And I tried to do my best of thinking through people who I know and like big categories that I know exist here. But if your field is not represented, please write it in and please feel free to check two boxes to combine them to make what you actually do, right? That If you're like some kind of Voltron employee, I don't know. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Defender of the Universe is not an option, but you could, there is other, please specify. So um, while I'm talking, fill these out, and, and uh, Dell's coming around with some pens. What this is going to do is help me understand what groups of vocation and industry we have at Artisan, because for our potluck On March 2nd, we're going to seat you according to your industry, all right? And you're going to to have discussions um, based on the the type of work that you do. And so this will help me know um, what signs to make for the tables, and it also kind of help us understand uh, what's going on. So we're starting this new series today called Faith at Work. We finished up last week with Faith at Home, so we've made a little topical commute here talking about faith at work for the next four weeks. Um, As I've said before, in preparation for this, work is where you spend most of your waking hours, probably. Um, Certainly a lot of them. And uh, we view faith as very holistic here at Artisan. I think that's consistent with with Christian teaching throughout time. Um, And so it's important for me to be trying to presenting you with the idea that you don't stop being a Christian when you walk into your office or when you walk into your workplace uh, or if you, if you work at home when you walk up to the home office or uh, when, you, when, you, when you get out of bed and start dealing with the children or whatever it is that you do, your faith uh, shouldn't be put on pause for that because your faith ought to be all-encompassing and all that you do waking and sleeping, all day and all night, um, can be thought and should be thought to be part of what it means as to, be, to be following Jesus. So how do you do all the things that you do and be following Jesus as you do them? That's what we want to look at, specifically your working hours for the next few weeks. And the place that I want to start this morning is in the first two chapters of the Bible. These two creation stories that are present in um, Genesis 1 and 2, and they talk about um, paradise, the Garden of Eden. 
and I want to look at what work was like in paradise. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to say this very quickly and then move on, but we are dealing with Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation stories of the Old Testament. Obviously, this topic has been in the news this past week. Um, it, most of you, I think, are aware that there was a highly publicized debate this past week between um, Ken Ham, who runs Answers in Genesis and the uh, Creation Museum, I think, and Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that the artisan woo came for Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> okay. Um, see, this is where it would have been good if I could have like, really written down what I wanted to say here, because I needed to say it quickly and concisely and gently and so forth. But here's what I'd like to say about this. Um, I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 were ever intended to deal with scientific questions. Um, I think it's a, it's a misappropriation of Scripture to treat them as such. And I think that when you, when you uh, insist on doing that, what it requires you to do is engage in some kind of pseudo-scientific explanations of things that, that really are almost irrelevant to the texts at hand. So um, when, when I teach on Genesis 1 and 2, what I try to do is rather than talk about details, six 24-hour days, for example, I like to talk about principles. You know, God made things. Right? I really think that's what the text is, is more interested in telling us. Um, so when we talk about this morning understand that we're going to be talking about uh, God's creative work and the first uh, kind of humans, which I think are meant to be understood archetypically. Um, I think that despite the fact that I have no interest in in trying to make that into a a description of science um, or, or anything related to that, I do think it has a lot to tell us. So... I think that there's these two opposite mistakes you can make. One is to go way literal with this stuff, and the other is to go, well, it clearly doesn't have anything to say to me. It's this nonsensical ancient Near East creation myth. Right? There's this giant space in between where I think most of you probably already exist um, intellectually, and uh, where I want us to exist spiritually as well. Fair enough? Okay. Oh. So let's, let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. These are really easy to find in the Bible. Um, <laughs> uh, if you can't find Genesis 1, well, you're trying too hard. And I, I, can't, I literally can't get to the page right now. <laughs> so smart. SMRT. So these creation stories um, stand in really interesting contrast to other ancient creation stories, um, notably the ones that, that were around at the time when the people in the Bible um, were probably assembling this, these stories and, and writing them down. Um, so for example, the ancient Greek creation stories um, talk about how there's this golden age where Gods and humans exist together, and nobody has to do any work because, uh, you know, the work just, the, the, whatever you need just, just kind of pro- is produced automatically, and you just sit and bask in it. And then there's creation stories that talk about how, um, how, you know, 
the gods like destroyed things and 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 used the the rubble to build <laughs> the world and the Hebrew creation stories are entirely different from really all of the other ancient creation stories, and that's significant. Um, when, you, when you look at those other ones and all the destruction and, and death and decay that's present in them and, and like really evil stuff, uh, and then you compare them to these stories, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, so I would encourage you to research that. You could look at, for example, uh, Hesiod's uh, Greek creation story. That's the one that has the golden age. So... What I would like to, to point out here is this story of creation, first of all, is a story of God at work. And not only God working, but God delighting in that, in that which he's making. Right? So many of you have heard this story over and over again. Um, even if you've never read it in the Bible, you probably are familiar with the rhythm of God made this on the first day, and that on the second day, and that on the third day, and so forth. And at the, at the end of each thing... Uh, at the end of each, each day of creation, you see God saying, God seeing it and seeing that it is good. Right? God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And he makes all this other stuff, and God saw that it was good, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. There's this rhythmic telling, and it's punctuated by God sort of sitting back and reflecting on what he's made. Now, if you're a Bible kind of grew up kind of in the church and you're familiar with these stories, you've, you've heard them a bunch of times, that rhythm um, is in your ears. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And it's very kind of religious language that maybe doesn't communicate to you. But what I'd like to ask you to think about, which I think will help you get the spirit of what's going on there, is sometime that you made something yourself and it turned out really good. Right? So I, as some of you know that I, I make these little... Uh, guitar effect pedals, right? And I made one for a friend recently and uh, really put a lot of work into it because I wanted it to, to not only work well and sound good, but also look really good. And I I spent a lot of time on it and I finished it and I, I held it up and I was like, this has got to go on Instagram. This is good, <laughs> right? This looks good. I had this kind of moment of pride at something that I had made turning out right, that's what I think is inherent in, in, this, in this rhythm of God saw that it was good. He makes these things, you know, whatever it is in that particular day, plants or a type of animal, and he stands back and he says, that is, that is good. So you see God working and delighting in the work. That's an important theological principle that we should keep in mind as we, as we um, begin to come through this. And then if you look at verse 27 in chapter 1, this is a verse that we use all the time. Um, Very, very important theological statement. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, you may have slightly different wording there, slightly different pronouns depending on the translation that you prefer. I think this one is very true to what I understand the Hebrew to mean. Um, God created humankind, both men and women, in his image. So part of what that means, and we talk about this at Artists, and this is so important to our identity as a church, part of what that means is that you are like God in that you're inherently a creator in some ways. Now, you're not going to go create whole universes, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you are like, that you are a God or that you are God. I'm saying that that God's creative impulse is passed on into you in what theologians call the imago dei, the image of God. You're made like God 
And one of the things that that means is that, that you, are, um, you are also a maker. Now, whether you're a craftsperson or an artist or do this for your formal work or, or if you're a, a, a poet or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be fine arts, it doesn't have to be a physical product. There's this impulse in you to, to make and do and create um, and to bring order to things. That I, that, that I very much think is, is part of you as an, a bearer of God's image. So you look at the next verse, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, every living thing that moves upon the earth. I had a professor in seminary who joked that, that this is the one command of God that we have done a good job at, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, there's some other language in this, in this verse that kind of sounds a little weird to our ears, but, but about subduing the earth and, and having dominion over it, it, it can end up sounding very uh, domineering. It can end up sounding kind of very controlling. I don't think that's really what it's meant to sound like. I don't think that's what it's meant to mean. Um, I think it's more about uh, cultivation, Curation. God placed people in the world with a particular task to have dominion over it. To have, um, it's not dominion in the sense of like um, aggressive control, but in the sense of, of uh, like a, a curator or a docent in a museum, that kind of thing. Um, or, a, or a gardener, for example, which is what we'll get to in just a second. So that's Genesis 1, which is one creation story. Genesis 2 takes us to uh, an entirely different creation story, which, um, not to belabor the point I made earlier, but, but if you were to take it literally, I think is mutually exclusive with the first one, um, without some really weird gymnastical interpretations. But this one is a, a very specific story about how God makes people. Um, and the interesting thing is that he gives them very real work to do. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse, um, well, second half of verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. That's an important thing. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of his ground of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, and by the way, he gives him this name, Adam, which, which is the Hebrew word for man. This is why I think it's intelligent, or it's why I think it's appropriate to interpret Adam as an archetype, because he's named man. It's kind of like calling him every man. And Eve is named woman. Um, so it's like he made a person and called him man. Again, I'm not going to belabor that point. But um, Move on to verses 7 through 9. Uh, Start with verse 8 here. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's jump ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And look at verse 19. 
Out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I want you to remember that verb call for later. But uh, one of the things that's happening in this story is that God is bringing other parts of creation to man, um, capital M, this guy named man, and, and uh, allowing him to participate in the ordering of creation by giving these things different names. And he's also instructed to till and keep the garden, the, 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 the created place where he's been placed by God. So again, uh, the concept of cultivation, of curation, of bringing order to the world in which he lives. And so uh, what I want to do as we think about faith at work is extrapolate that idea a little bit and say that it's in our inherited, created nature to work. It's part of how we're made is the need and requirement and expectation that we will work. And that in our work, whatever it might be, whether you're actually a literal gardener or a a zoologist, (laughs) there's a sense that you are participating in the the continuing um, creative work of God in the world by, by, by cultivating it, by bringing order to things. And this goes for all of us. It's, it's not like just religious professionals um, get to participate in doing the work of God. All of you, I would suggest, ought to be thinking about your labor, your work, your job, whatever it is, as a way of uh, participating with God in, in bringing about the flourishing of the world. That sounds very lofty, and I recognize that, but I really think it's true. The gardening metaphor is a really beautiful one. If you think about how a skilled gardener might, might approach a, a new patch of wild growth, right? the gardener would, would pull out the bad ones and she'd take care of the soil and plant you know, good plants, maybe food in very neat orderly rows. Right? I'm not a gardener, but I'm told this is what they do. <laughs> um, that picture of, of that type of work, I think, can be applied to really any vocation, any industry, whatever it is. And here's the other thing I'd like you to notice. These commands to work in all the various forms, you know, to, to subdue and fill the earth, to, to cultivate it, to till and keep it, um, to, to, bring, to, to bring order to it. All of those commands come at a part in the story that predates and precedes the fall. All of this stuff comes before sin enters the world. So I think there's this idea, well, there is this idea, which I think is a, a misconception, that work is our curse as human beings. That there's this sin enters the world, we rebel against God, and as a result of that, part of our punishment is that we have to take up and 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 go to work every day, whatever it might be that you do. That work is the curse. No. Work is under the curse, just as all of we all of us are. 
So your work may be horrible some days and very difficult other days. It may feel fruitless and pointless. That is not because work is is, is the curse. It's because work is cursed. (laughs) Does that make sense? And what we're going to talk about next week is uh, uh, called uh, Toil and Thistles, I think. It's going to be talking about work after the fall. Why is our work so pointless and fruitless and endless and painful sometimes? That's for next week. Today, I want to be thinking very kind of redemptively about work. Um, working in paradise. Notice that all of, this, all of these commands to, to be part of creation in this cultivating, order-bringing, flourishing way, that all comes before sin enters the world. Okay, it's part of our inherent, inherent created nature. Right? It's part of our original good design. When God stepped back and said, that's very good, part of it, I think, was this, is, this creation, this human race, is, is going kind of, to join me in seeking and bringing about the flourishing of the world and uh, of, of other people. So speaking about God's commands related to work, one of the Ten Commandments has a little bit something to say about work, doesn't it? Do you remember this, Bible nerds? Which one of the Ten Commandments talks about work? What does it say? You don't have to know the number. Well, if you do, shout it out. We will all think you're really smart. Three? You think so? You had to study them in fourth grade. Oh, man. <laughs> what does it say, Grant? Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, I happen to know where this is in the Bible. It's Exodus chapter 20. Somewhere else too, by the way, but most commonly we look at it in Exodus. And I'm going to read it to you because it says that. Yes, Grant, but that's not all it says. Look at Exodus 20, verse 8. Now, I submit to you, this whole thing is the command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's what Grant said. The command goes on to say, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And it actually goes back to um, the creation story, the first creation story where God rests on the seventh day. Um, And it's, it's very much in contrast to what the Egyptians placed the Israelites under when they were in slavery where they had to work nonstop every day of the week forever. Um, it offers, offers the same respite to everybody in the household, including animals and, and servants. Right. So the command is not just don't work on the Sabbath. The command is also do work on the other days. Right. I think that's kind of an interesting little nuance that we sometimes miss. Okay, so to conclude this morning, I want to jump into the New Testament very briefly and look at something from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This passage, I think, brings home something that I've hinted at a little bit this morning, which I think is really, really important, maybe the most important thing that we will get out of this entire series. Um, The passage itself here, I will admit, is a little bit peculiar, um, but I hope that the message will still come through. I'm actually going to skip some verses, which if you know me, you know hurts my soul. I really don't like jumping around and treating Scripture that way, but 
Um, today, I just don't have time to to go into the other details here, and they're they're frankly a little bit weird. So, if you want some interesting devotional reading this um, this week, you can read the other verses that I don't read uh, this morning. But on page nine thirty in our red Bibles, First Corinthians seven, verse seventeen, and then I'm going to jump ahead to verse twenty one. However, that may be. Let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God has called you. And then Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. Go on to verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. And in verse 24, in whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. All right. The point of this passage, and again, I understand it's, a, it's maybe not crystal clear, but the point of this passage here, I think, is that there's no need to change what you are doing in order to serve God. And I would specifically say, for the purposes of our topic this next month, there's no need to change what you're doing at work for the purposes of serving God there. Um, well, there may, you may need to change some of the things you do at work. That's not what I mean. My point is, you don't have to get a different job, right? If you're a parking lot attendant, you don't have to like, give that up and enter the ministry. If you're a physician, you don't have to put down you know, the, the stethoscope and the scalpel and and become a missionary. If you're a software engineer, you don't have to uh, shut down your Unix command line and, and go to seminary. Right? Let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned to which God has called you. Remember before, where did the word call come into the story, that second story of creation? Adam calling the animals by different names. So that's what this verb means. It's, it's, it's a naming, right? So whoever God has named you, whatever kind of person he's made you to be, lead that life. The Latin word for calling is vocare, and we get our word vocation from that Latin root. Whatever your vocation is, Think of that as your calling. Think of that as your naming. Certainly as a big part of your identity, whether you kind of intended it to be so or not. I want you to consider it a fulfillment of your calling as a Christian, your naming as an adopted son or daughter of God. To do good work in whatever field you work in. You know, Paul even says this to slaves. And again, slavery in, the, in this culture is not like what we think of with you know, slavery in, in the American South. Um, that doesn't mean it was a picnic, but it's not, you know, it's not quite the same thing. It's more like indentured servitude. But let's be honest, it's not what somebody would choose for their life. And Paul is saying, if you're a slave, serve God as a slave. That's, that's a pretty dramatic thing to say, right? I'm, I'm, sorry, that, I'm sorry that you don't like your job, <laughs> But, you know, 
I don't know. I worked at Burger King. It might have been worse than, than indentured servitude in the ancient Near East. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but it's probably not as bad as being a slave, right? And as Paul, Paul is, if Paul is saying to slaves, serve God as a slave, then I think he's saying to all of you, serve God as a, you know, a graphic designer, as an architect, as a homemaker, as a janitor, you know, as a teacher, right? As an engineer, as a student, as a TV producer, as a barista. There's a bunch that I missed. I'll see them when you, when you hand them in. But whatever it is, you can find a way to live out your Christian faith in that field. I read an excellent essay last night uh, by Dorothy Sayers. It's a wartime kind of thing about the nature of work. It's called Why Work? You can find a PDF of it online. It's amazing, especially the second half of it is absolutely amazing. And I wanted to quote like, every other line from it. So good. One of them that I want to call out for you as we close today was our worship meditation this morning, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Um, I didn't tell Brian to do this either, so it's part of being discombobulated, but it's, uh, it's on the screen here. The only Christian work is good work well done. And this, is, this is where my task comes in. Let the church see to it that the workers are Christian people and do their work well as to God then all the work will be Christian work. That's on a timer. I didn't, I didn't read it fast enough. Sorry. <laughs> Whether it is church embroidery or sewage farming. Right? Isn't that a great, great little image to close our, our sermon time with? All the work will be Christian work. Whether you're, like, whether you're making stuff for the church building or... Farming and sewage. Dorothy Sayers, man, what a brilliant lady. This is really what I want you to catch. If you miss everything else for the next month, this is what I want you to catch. All the work can be Christian work if you are a Christian person doing it. Bring about human flourishing. Cultivate the world. Bring order. um, Be a little creator in your sphere of influence, whatever it might be. All right. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this wonderful picture of creation. And uh, we pray that as we seek to apply these particular ideas to our lives, uh, especially at work, that your spirit would be among us. Steering us, guiding us, leading us, convicting us, challenging us, giving us courage when it's necessary uh, as we try to be Christian people doing work as if we are doing it for your sake knowing that it's joining you in your cultivation of the world. It's, it's part of your sustaining grace through which human flourishing and um, a good world can come about. Let us take on that calling with bravery and excitement. And let us be part of making a difference in our world for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, our communion table will be open as we continue to sing. Um, Our prayer station up here will be, uh, I think, populated by a member of our prayer team if you'd like to receive prayer. Thank you, Dell. Yeah, um, why don't you put the strainer right here by the table. This colander is where you can put your your faith at work surveys. Thank you, Dell, for thinking that. I didn't think of that. We've got to have a place to put them. So, um...
our communion table is open to all who follow Jesus in this place. You don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a member of the family of God, and, and you become a member of the family of God, not by anything that you've done correct, uh, but by God adopting you into his family through the grace that's offered to you in Jesus, his son. Uh, so break off a piece of this uh, unleavened bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and receive Christ's body and blood uh, given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Let's continue to worship him together this morning. Um, Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.